Here it's chaos. Rocky, you went the distance. You went the 15 rounds. How do you feel? All right, it's all right. What are you thinking about when that buzzer's on? Uh, that what do you think about when the 15th round uh, you're coming out? Welcome everybody to the monthly movie dispatch. We get together every month and talk about what movies you've seen, what we recommend, and what to avoid. What separates us from the other 100,000 other movie-related shows is that we're high school friends and have been discussing movies for 15 years. We love talking film, and we'd be doing it even if no one was listening. So it's November 2018. We're getting into the end of the year stuff. There's a lot of big movies coming out, and uh, a lot of movies came out in the month of November. So uh, first, let's let's see who's here with us. Uh, I'm Nick Moffat. We've got Brandon Bowlby in New York. Hey, guys. Sean in Seattle. How's it going? And Derek in Everett. Hello. So um, how you doing, guys? What's what's happening? November's awesome. Saw 15 films this, this month. Jeez. Nice. I had three Thanksgiving dinners. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I feel like this is the time of year where uh, you start hearing about what what might be nominated for for the Academy Awards. People on other podcasts and YouTube shows, they start, you know, going over the big end-of-the-year movies. And it's kind of like, I don't know, you. I, I feel like you kind of sit back and you see, you know, you have to kind of decide what to see. I mean... Some things are going to hit bigger than others. There's going to be the big movies that come out, like Fantastic Beasts, which we're going to talk about later. And then there's like going to be the indie ones where are they going to catch catch on or are they just going to get lost? And, uh, you know, like Moonlight a few years ago, that came out, I think, in October and November. And then that ended up winning Best Picture. Is there going to be a movie like that this year? Right. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about this episode. And but, also um, a lot of the top 10 lists, the early ones that we think are too early, are going to start coming out in the next like two weeks now. Yeah, yeah, like the December ones will start coming out, but we don't do our top 10 list until around the Academy Awards in February, because, I mean, for us out in Seattle and Washington, we can't even see a lot of these big nominees until until January at least, so... Um, Anyway, yeah. So uh, we're gonna start things off by doing a new segment. Uh, it's going to be. It's called the Best of the Year Update. So uh, now that we're getting towards the end of the year, there's a lot of movies that we missed over the course of the year. So these are all gonna be movies that we've seen that we've talked about before in the show. But it's gonna be like a reminder that these are some of the biggest movies of the year that will end up on end of the year lists. So Sean, do you want to start us off on that? Um, yeah, I have two movies that I saw recently, just this month, um, that were long overdue, or at least one of them was really long overdue. Uh, I saw You Were Never Really Here, which is... Uh, ho, ho. Uh, yeah, it's the uh, Lynn Ramsey movie that came out, I think in... When did that come out? It came out in April, um, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and it, yeah, it's a... Um, it's a pretty incredible film. Uh, there's a lot to say about it. I don't really know what to say because just uh, trying to give it a shout out and keep it short. But um, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful film. It's um, it's really hard to watch at the same time. Um, it's dealing with some very heavy, uh, serious issues, and um, it's very nihilistic. Uh, but I feel like it, the the runtime being only an hour and a half, it's it's fairly short and it's it's not kind of you know it's not very traumatic to sit through. Um, 
And where where did you see that shot? Where did you see that movie? I just saw it at home. Um, I mean, did you get it on Amazon Prime? No, I think I got it. I got it on Blu-ray at home. Um, Blu-ray from Netflix. Awesome. No, no end of the year spoilers. But if you take our letterbox ratings between the four of us, you were never really here. All four of us gave it four point five stars, and I think it's our collective number one film of the year so far. Yeah, nice. My only complaint about that movie is that it could have been longer. You know, yeah. it was it was only ninety minutes, and that's great for a runtime, but. It was concise, but it could have gone on a little longer. But yeah, the the other movie I uh, saw was Free Solo, which I don't see a whole lot of documentaries. Um, I usually only see a couple a year, but uh, this one was a really, really interesting movie. Uh, it it's about the free solo climber who did El Capitan. It's um, it's pretty incredibly shot. Um, how they got all these camera angles of him climbing up the mountain by himself. Um, some of them were remote controlled cameras and some of them were actual camera camera operators out on the mountain kind of halfway up. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a super intense movie that um, actually does a really good job of showing you the challenges of of climbing um, and, and problem solving and, and the planning and the prep that goes into doing something like this. So it's, it's both really interesting and uh, really nerve wracking and, and it's uh, pretty crazy to watch what he did. So yeah, those are my yeah, movies. I loved that film. So where did, where did you see free solo? Sean? I saw that at um, uh, the Seattle AMC 10 theater so that still might be in theaters right now so it might be yeah it's still showing in new york yeah it might still be in seattle somewhere cool so i wanted to bring up a hearts beat loud i finally saw that movie and it was it was really wonderful i i really enjoy this movie it stars nick offerman and uh, he owns a record store and he kind of decides that he's going to close his record store it's it's a he it takes place in New York city. It's very much a Brooklyn movie and his daughter's going away to college. Like the whole film has a sense of things ending and Nick Offerman's character needs to move on, but he instead uh, makes a song with his daughter and it kind of becomes a hit. And it's just, it just, it's, it's, there's so much good music in it. And they have this montage of, of uh, recording and writing a song together. And it's, it's so great. And I, I, I just, I really love this movie. I thought it was, I mean, it's, it's not like as fun as you might expect because it does have the sense of kind of dread throughout that things are coming to an end, but it also is, uh, it also was fun because it just had such great music and such great characters. And um, I watched that. I streamed that on Canopy. I don't know. Do you guys know about Canopy? Um, I don't. Never I don't, heard of it. I don't mean to. I don't mean to put us off the rails here on this, but I want to tell you guys about this uh, streaming service anyway. Um, I kind of forgot that to write it in our show notes, but um, Canopy is pretty cool because it's it's this. Um, I mean, with Filmstruck going down, that's another streaming service that just died. Right. Uh, Canopy is kind of a really wonderful um, new um, platform. Uh, basically, you sign you sign up using your library card, so it's free. Oh, and yeah, I heard about this. Yeah, it's free, and it basically it just it just has 
indies, foreign films, and the Criterion Collection, and other classics. And um, you, can, you can only watch five movies a month, so you are kind of limited on it, but it has A24's whole collection. Hmm. So every single A24 movie is on there now, and it just... It's just pretty dope. I'm I'm really into it. I watched uh, the 400 Blows last night, which is a French new wave classic, and it just I don't know. I just want to tell you guys about it. It's it's a really great. Uh, you know, I've got connected to my Amazon TV, so um, right. recommend. You can't beat free. Yeah. That, that also means that they have a lot of uh, Kurosawa movies. You guys definitely you guys should uh, should go see. That's how I watched uh, Seven Samurai. Actually, oh nice. So yeah. Um, Anyway, I wanted to bring up uh, Three Identical Strangers, which is a documentary we've talked about a couple times in the show already. And it's it's a really great story. It's about those three uh, brothers, twin brothers, who were separated at birth, and then they coincidentally found themselves later on. And there's a lot of crazy twists in it. Like, it goes in directions that you wouldn't expect. And the story itself is completely fascinating. But the filming, like the documentary itself, is like just okay. So I'm like, I re- I want to recommend it to anyone who likes documentaries because it's it's interesting. Like it's it's really a really great story, and I just I just felt like the documentary itself tried to do too much and tried to get a little too cute with with what they were trying to do and. They probably could have done less, and it would have been a better yeah. documentary. The story but. was richer than the storytelling, but it's yeah. so the story was so good that it's worth watching for sure. Right, totally. And I also wanted to bring up Eighth Grade, the new uh, Bo Burnham movie. And I guess it's his first uh, directorial movie, but um, that's the movie uh, that takes place in a year of eighth grade. Um, or it's it's the end of a year of eighth grade, and it's uh, it's getting great reviews. Everyone loves it. Everyone the show loves it. I probably liked it less than everybody else, just because it was it was a little too painfully awkward for me, and there were a couple scenes that just kind of felt unrealistic. But um, overall, though, it had a lot of heart, and if you wanted to see what it's like in eighth grade or want to kind of relive that awkwardness in a very true, you know, kind of meaningful way. Um, you know, I would, I would recommend eighth grade. Yeah. I almost gave that five stars, but I think I know what scene you're talking about with a little bit of forcedness. I kind of dropped it down to only 4.5. Yeah. So, um, I got that one, uh, from the red box. So, um, yeah, all of those are available now. I got, I think I forgot to mention, I got three identical strangers from the red box too. So, um, Anyway, keep your eyes open for uh, the end of the year list that are coming up, and we'll keep uh, telling we'll we'll keep talking about the movies that we're catching up on. So now we're going to go into our short reviews of movies that have come out in the month of November that maybe we've seen in theaters or at home. But uh, so, Brandon, you're going to kick us off on that one. Yeah, so I believe I'm the only one here who went to see Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, this is the Brian Singer documentary about the band Queen. Biopic. Oh, did I say documentary? Yeah, biopic um, about uh, the band Queen and Freddie Mercury. Predominantly Freddie Mercury. This is his. This is definitely his story here. Um, I actually really enjoyed this movie. It's for sure is a super straightforward band biopic. It it doesn't like move far from the formula. You know, has the, all the typical like rises and falls and 
like break up climax and get back together for the band. And so it goes through all the same, you know, motions as you'd probably expect. But it it Brian Singer does bring a unique like fun style to it. And I think it's most telling in his editing and cinematography in this movie. It's super super playful and really well crafted. Um, the camera like is always finding fun little unique angles, and they don't linger for very long, so it can be it can be hard to miss. But um, the way it moves around, the way it like you know just shows two subjects talking when they're finally like performing live, there's some really fun um, you know ways of showing the band playing that I thought was incredibly artful. Um, but overall, it's like it's just a really enjoyable film uh, that kind of suffers just from like being a more mundane arc that you've probably seen before. Yeah. I've heard great things about that movie and I've also heard just okay things about it. It doesn't seem like anyone doesn't like the movie overall. Like, um, Andrew, man, he's a you know good friend of ours from, you know, high school. He saw it and loved it. He called me afterward and was just like, Freddie Mercury is one of my all time heroes now that I love that movie so much. He's just a, one of the best. And, uh, the, the worst thing I've heard about that movie is that it's basically like a Wikipedia article. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's so by the books. You've seen this before, for sure. And they're, they're not showing you much of a new angle. Um, besides maybe it's pacing, it's really well done pacing and um, filmmaking style. And it's got good performances, without a doubt. Um, what's it? Rami, uh, Rami Malek? Rami Malek. Rami Malek is... Yeah, has a really great performance in this film. I think they did, they went a little overboard on his teeth and uh, whatever prosthetics they made him put in his mouth for the whole movie. <laughs> but uh, but he his performance is really great. I wouldn't be surprised now that we're talking about the Oscars if he at least gets a nomination in there. I don't think he'll win, but it would be cool to see him in the running. Cool. So that's uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, that's probably, I think that's still in theaters now. Yep. Um, so I wanted to bring up a movie called the other side of the wind. So it's a 2018 movie, but it's, uh, it's Orson Welles's new movie, which is funny because Orson Welles died in 1985. So funny. So yeah, it's not funny funny. that he died, but like, you know, it's basically this movie got shot in the late seventies. And then uh, there were some pro- like th- there's some problems with the editing and the rights to it. And then Orson Welles died, and it kind of was bounced around to different studios, and people worked on it over the years. And they finally put it together and uh, finished it and premiered at some film festivals. And then Netflix picked it up and released it on Netflix. So anyway. Uh, it's it's this movie can't be in the running for Oscars or anything. Right? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't think it'll be nominated for Oscars or anything. I mean, it's Netflix like has that seeing the scenario of Orson Welles winning like Best Picture in 2018 or something. That would be crazy. But at the same time, I wonder what rule there would be that <clears throat> says that you can't you know, release a movie years and years after like you you shot it and have it not be nominated. Yeah. I mean, that that's true. It happens uh, all the time. Like movies get released years after they were shot and, 
and put yeah. together. I guess the big question is, did it get a theatrical release? Mm. I don't yeah. think so. That's and all that's... that matters is, is it's its first oh. theatrical release. And, you know, Netflix is trying to, uh, you know, bust into the uh, Academy Awards scene, you know, with Roma and the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Both of them got very limited, are getting very limited uh, releases in theaters. Yeah. But I, I, I know that this movie, The Other Side of the Wind, was, it played at festivals, but I don't think it ever got, like, a theatrical release. So... I don't think they're going to try. You know, I think that's part of this thing. I, I'm considering it for the end of the year stuff. Like, I'm going to consider it for my end of the year list. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I think but, that's valid. Uh, I'd like that. I don't think that the Academy Award is going to um, recognize it at all. Oh, wait, sorry. I just want to say that I just read that uh, Netflix is bringing it to theaters where they have already. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 Nice. I mean, there's all sorts of politics with the Academy Awards, so who knows, I guess. Um, maybe there aren't explicit rules, but maybe people will be like, well, nah, you know, and <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't count. I don't know if people are even really talking about it too much either, um, which I feel like they should. So, I mean, I want to tell you guys about it. It's it's fascinating. Like, it is one of the more interesting creative movies I've seen in a long time. It kind of reminded me of, like, Synecdoche, New York, um, except, you know, this movie came out, you know, this movie was filmed, like, you know, in the 70s. It's like, the, it, it reminded me of a lot of, like, you know, modern movies, like Charlie Kaufman movies or, you know, other filmmakers who kind of film things in unique ways, but... You know, Orson Welles did this so many years ago, and it's just coming out. Basically, it's one of those movies where it starts, and you have to kind of like race to catch up with it because you're you're so out of context right from the get go, and you have to like race to figure out what exactly is happening. And it's silly and ridiculous. And then once you kind of figure it out, it's like, wow, this is this is brilliant. This is something totally unique and something you've never seen before. So, and you know, cool. people are talking about how it like it. Orson Welles might have been like making it autobiographical in some ways because I mean like look at it like the movie is about a movie that took forever to come out and I mean clearly this movie took forever to come out like and yeah. it just there's weird parallels of that like that in this movie nice definitely want to check that out before the end of the year this sounds great sorry where did you watch it again it's it's on Netflix, so it's awesome. a it's a, oh, it was one go. of those uh, Netflix originals. It's straight on Netflix. So there's there's also a documentary about what happened, like why it took so long for that to come out. Similar to their Animal House release, they did of the the film and the documentary at the same time. It's kind of a cool system. Yeah, totally. Um, anyway, so that's the other side of the wind. I gave it four and a half stars. So it's it's up there, one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, I mean, I don't think everyone will love it, but I think you guys will. So, um, All right. So who's next? Sean, uh, what do you got? <clears throat> um, yeah, I saw a movie called Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is a movie starring Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Um, it's about popular biographer Lee Israel. So the deception is she starts uh, forging letters from from famous authors um, as kind of collect and, and starts selling them as collectibles. Um, 
and it's it's just a movie. It's not um, the plot isn't too crazy. It doesn't get get uh, too out there. It's uh, mostly just Melissa McCarthy and Richard Grant uh, giving these pretty incredible performances and uh just being really funny like melissa mccarthy was perfectly cast for this role she's just hilarious and but she definitely shows another side of her acting talents with uh gets pretty dramatic at points and and um it's pretty emotional and Mm -hmm. um it's it's really interesting I saw this movie as well, and it was definitely, while I knew it was Melissa McCarthy taking like a turn out of comedy, it was much more sad of a film than I expected. Um, Mm -hmm. Her character is just like, it's just a really sad person all around. Um, Her lifestyle, her personality, everything. And yeah, her performance is really great. Um, And the whole movie is super confident. It looks great. It's, you know, well acted, well paced. I, I maybe was hoping for a little bit more of a punch at some point or another. It doesn't necessarily come too hard. Um, it kind of stays quiet and stays simple with the plot, um, which was good and bad. But I definitely liked it a lot and recommend it. So because this was based on her memoir, so it's it's mostly from her perspective. Like, so... Like in her memoir, she like admitted that she like was a criminal and forged a bunch of letters, and so this is all about like it's like totally from her perspective, right? And how it affected her. Yeah, for the most part, there's um, you know, there's a little bit of like kind of some investigation stuff going on uh, as well, but yeah, it's pretty much from her perspective. And well, cool. Um, so that's can you ever forgive me? And uh, it's still in theaters. Uh, Brandon, uh, you had another movie you wanted to talk about. All right, guys. So I have a really good movie for you. I don't think anyone's seen it yet. Uh, it's called The Sisters Brothers. And I wasn't expecting too much going in because I had not heard too much word of mouth on this. Um, but I loved this movie, guys. Um, I gave it like four and a half stars on Letterbox. This movie like mm. totally surprised me. Um, it's a very like... It's a Western. Uh, it takes place in like Northern California, Oregon type area. Um, and it's just about these two outlaws that are getting like assigned to, you know, the kind of hitmen. So they have one assignment they have to go down to California to uh, take care of. And it starts out seeming pretty straightforward, um, but it ends up dealing with like a larger cast of characters and a more slightly supernatural, like, direction that the movie turns into um and it's it's super it's super fascinating the director of this movie is uh, i think i believe a french director he his last film won at cons like two years ago for this great movie called deep on and now he came to you know america and made this really good film has joaquin phoenix in it and who's that comedic actor John C. Riley and John C. Riley, surprising like matchup between the two, but they do a, a great job. The kind of morals and ethics in this movie are super dark, and the the way the characters like finish in the climax and what they go to, whether you know some are redeemed or not, is kind of up to you. And it can kind of feel a little gross because you're these people are pieces of shit. Um, but 
I don't think it leans too hard one way or the other. And, you know, you can decide for yourself what you want to, you know, how you kind of want to view them by the end of the film. Um, but God, like this movie is way more epic than you would think. It takes place over a large like time frame and a large like distance. It's it is really surprisingly good, guys. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this movie. I I kind of I knew that it was I like knew that it was coming out at some point, but I missed it completely when it came out. Like it came out in October. I was busy with horror movie month and. I mean, I, I just, I didn't even, I saw your review on Letterboxd and I was immediately like, I want to watch this movie today. Like, how can I watch this movie? And I like, I looked it up and it was like, it came out in October. Yeah. No so one it's talked like not, about it. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not it available on, on my, streaming. Like, it was even on my, I mentioned it for my most anticipated movies, uh, for that episode. Oh, right. I just, yeah. I just totally missed it when it came out. Yeah, I kind of saw it at a second-run theater, too, which is why I was still able to see it in November. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, so it's not available on streaming yet. It's not in theaters anymore, so I'm just, like, patiently waiting till, uh, till I can see it. But just based on what you've said, like, I'm I'm really excited about it, so. Yep. Um, Isn't um, that a Netflix original as well? I don't think Sisters so. Brothers? No. No, it would it'd be, it'd be on Netflix if it was Netflix original. Yeah. Netflix likes to do like, at least so far, they like to do, um, a limited run, but then put it right on Netflix at the same time. Anyway, uh, Derek, uh, you've got another movie coming up. Yeah. I went and saw overlord. It's a new bad robot movie about, it's about like a world war two. It's a world war two. It's a war movie. Um, but in this movie, the Nazis have like these, like undead monsters and stuff like that. And so that's kind of the premise is just like Nazi zombies. That's at least that's what it was really advertised as. Um, I love this movie. It was so much fun. It was a lot more dramatic than I thought it would be. Like the, the war stuff in this movie is really, there's just a lot more of it. It's a lot less supernatural than, than I was expecting. I was expecting like kind of an over the top action, like horror gore fest or something. But it's really like the first 45 minutes of this movie is like, it's just as serious as saving private Ryan. Like it's, it takes, it follows the soldiers that land the night before D day, um, right before the Normandy beach battle. And it was the team that went in to destroy, um, or to take out some of the communications equipment that the Nazis had. So when the Normandy battle, when they, you know, stormed Normandy, they wouldn't have effective communications to bring in more soldiers and stuff like that. <clears throat> so that's kind of the premise of the movie. And then they find out that the Nazis are also making, like, these weird... They're trying to build, like, the Thousand-Year Army. So they, like, found out how to bring their soldiers back from the dead and stuff. Um... But yeah, I don't, it's, it's just, it's so oddly, it's so weird how well directed and shot and like, like this whole movie is just like, is really beautiful. Like the, it looks so good. And, um, or the first 20 minutes of this movie, some of the most intense 20 minutes I've seen this year for sure. It just like throws you so fast into like this battle and 
yeah, it's great. The horror's scarier than I thought it would be, too. It actually, like, goes deep into, like, it gets really scary at times. And it's just such a fun mix, like, mixed bag of stuff to put together. Um, it sounds like the advertising really tried to make it look like a light action stylized comedy. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Much it has more like dramatic playful in music. Every other aspect. Yeah. No, it's very dramatic. It's like, hmm. like I said, like I'd compare it to like Saving Private. Like it goes that Whoa. far <laughs> into like dealing with dark, like war stuff. Wow. Wow. That only those soldiers deal with before it even touches the horror or anything like that. It's weird, but it works really well. They, they, they pulled it all off really well. This was originally announced as uh, a Cloverfield movie too. Huh. It was back in the, like a couple of years ago. J.J. Abrams announced that Overlord was the next Cloverfield movie, and then so weird. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it's much better than the one that they actually made a Cloverfield movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Um, yeah, I I thought that trailer looked like. Uh, like the Grindhouse trailer, like Werewolf Woman the SS. Yeah, that's so, what I thought right. it was going to be. So you're saying I it was think much that's what more. They tried to sell it as. It was much yeah. more serious than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's Overlord, and uh, I think that's still in theaters now. Mm-hmm. Brandon uh, had one more short review, and I just totally skipped over it. So I'm sorry, Brandon. You had another movie you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, Mid '90s, I saw at the very beginning of the month. Um, I think I just barely missed our last podcast about it. Um, Sean already spoke about it and liked it a lot. Um, and I totally agree with everything he said last month. I think this is a like must see film, uh, directorial debut by Jonah Hill and the child actors are so impressive. Like I can't believe they got these performances out of these kids. And the whole movie is shot with this kind of more like square old style camera, like format, not old style, but just cheap nineties camera format. It was like a four um, by three ratio. Yeah. Ratio. And so it gives it just this whole, like really it's, it's a mega indie feeling film all the way through. Um, but I saw this with my mom and she actually like probably even loved it more than I did. She was talking about it the whole time I was hanging out with her in LA. Um, it deals with some really heavy stuff at times and it also like, you know, the kids are really funny to watch, but it's hard to watch these, you know, young teenagers going, drinking alcohol, getting punched in the face by their friends and brother and parents. And there's abuse and it's a brutal film. Um, you know, the kid so looks like a it, baby. Kid looks like a baby. And there's all these crazy adult scenes happening to him at every moment. Um, highly recommended. Go see it. Cool. So that's mid-90s, I think it's still in most theaters. So, um, yeah, like I was saying before, there wasn't one movie where all four of us saw that movie, so we're not going to do a spoiler section this this month, uh, but we will go in-depth on what we think are probably the four biggest uh, movies that have come out this month, where uh, at least two of us have seen them. So... Um, First up, uh, I want to talk about Creed 2. So, Creed 2 is the new installment in the Rocky series. Um, just brief uh, plot description. Under the tutelage of Rocky Balboa, light heavyweight contender Adonis Creed faces off against Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago. So, I don't know where you guys are at with the Rocky series. But, uh, like, last month at this time, I had seen... 
three. No, I've seen. I'd seen Rocky one, uh, Rocky three, uh, Rocky Balboa, the like the re- the reboot one, and and Creed, and all of them kind of vary in tone and quality. Uh, you know, Rocky won one best picture has, uh, some big themes with, um, social commentary. Uh, Rocky three at least was like very, uh, kind of goofy, had Hulk Hogan and Mr. T in it. Um, and I mean, for me, Creed was the best, like Creed, uh, Ryan Krugler directed that and it had some great action, some really uh, big emotions. And I don't know, I, I loved Creed. I don't know if you guys saw, but YouTube uh, released a bunch of movies for free. Basically, they like got the rights to a bunch of movies and just said like, "Oh, they're they're on our website now. Like you can you can watch them." And yeah, there's like a few commercials, but the whole Rocky series was on there. So I was like, "Hey, what the hell?" You know, uh, I'll watch some of these. So I watched Rocky Two, which was super fun. Like, Rocky 2 was, like, really, really fun. I think I preferred it over Rocky 1. Like, Rocky 1's probably better, but Rocky 2 is really fun. And then uh, and then I watched Rocky 4. And so Rocky 4 is the one that relates most to Creed 2. So, I mean, Creed 2 is is directly related to Rocky 4, though, because it's, you know, the, the movie follows a lot of you know, regular story beats, you know, it's a, it's a sports movie. You've seen, you've seen this story kind of before, you know, the, the big difference is that there's, you know, there, it's a, it's a part of the franchise. So, you know, it has franchise callbacks and I don't think it has a lot of fan service, but it does have like, you know, it does have fan service and it, uh, you can, I feel like, I like franchises, you know, I like the sort of, I like what they've done with Creed in making them similar to the old movies, but different enough that it feels fresh. So, um, you know, even though there were a lot of story beats, it totally worked for me. Um, it wasn't like, there's a point at the end where, you know, I, Rocky's music, you know, the classic dun 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 it finally comes on, except it's kind of an updated version of it, and, you know, I get goosebumps, and I'm just, like, you know, jacked up and excited about it, and, um, yeah. yeah I, I totally agree, like, when that, when that song came in, um, like, there had not, there hadn't really been anything fan y like that throughout the entire series, like, even in Creed 1, um, but that like just totally worked, especially like thematically as kind of of the <clears throat> you know Sylvester Stallone passing the torch to a new new era or a new generation um, that that worked really well, uh, and it get, yeah it gave me goosebumps as well. And I, I definitely think didn't think it was as good as the first one. You know, it it was by a different director, like this guy Stephen Cable Jr. He hasn't really directed much else, and um, you could just tell that Ryan Coogler is just a better director. Like he, you know, he directed Black Panther earlier this year, and people call that one of the best Marvel movies. And like, just you can tell it. He's on another level, and like even the Creed one when I watched it just recently, like I was so impressed by some of the stuff that he did. Not only. Um, you know, artistically, but like technically there was like that, the first big, um, fight scene in that movie, all being one continuous shot was so impressive. 
uh, and, and just, yeah, there's a lot of things throughout that movie that I was really impressed by that this movie didn't quite live up to, but that's, that was also kind of fine for me. It was, I don't think I needed, you know, needed this movie to work on that level. Like, I felt like it was a worthy, worthy piece of the franchise. You know, it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't nearly as good as, as last Creed, but it was, it definitely fit into the franchise in a, like a respectable way. And it, yeah, and there were also like there were a lot of really great moments, like some some really good emotional moments throughout the movie that worked really well. That almost like overall put the movie up there pretty close to the first Creed movie. It, it definitely wasn't as like serious of a movie, and and the plot uh, in a lot of ways is kind of eye rolly. It's like oh really we have to we have to rehash this. Um, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, <laughs> The, you, we have to rehash the Russian story, but it's, you know, it's, it's his son now. And, you know, I, I would kind of normally roll my eyes at that kind of decision. But I think just the fact that it was a really well-written movie and a really well-executed movie, it looked really good. All of the boxing was top-notch, just like the first one. Um, and, uh, yeah, just it, it worked on pretty much every level. Um, yeah, I mean the and, the the stuff with the Russians could have been it could have been much more eye rolly like it could have been like yeah, pretty bad sure. honestly. Yeah. But I really thought that the way they handled it with like they had this whole piece about about how the Russian society like pushed them away and and then once he started Ivan's uh, son started like winning matches and going to America and challenging Creed like they kind of brought him back in and. You know, Dolph Lundgren was all like happy to be brought back in, but you know his son, you know the the new up and coming boxer was like, "Dad, these people like pushed you away. Like, why are we doing this for them?" And I thought all of that was very compelling. You know, it's like it kind of added a whole like layer of like you kind of sympathized with them in some way, and uh, that was really good. And they also had like a lot of personal stuff with Creed. Like there was. Like, like him and Tessa Thompson's relationship is very believable. And, um, you know, he had to kind of grow a lot as, as a man, you know, like he had, um, they went through a lot of personal stuff and kind of, I wasn't necessarily expecting a lot of that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really liked it. So yeah, that's Creed 2. That's still in theaters now. Uh, the next movie we were going to talk about was, uh, Fantastic Beasts. The Crimes of Grindelwald. So, Derek and Brandon, you guys saw this movie? It's Grindelwald. Grindelwald. Sorry, I haven't seen it. <laughs> As we <Jeez>. now know. <laughs> that was the big twist. Do you, do you want to start off? Brandon? No, it's all yours, Derek. <clears throat> all right. Well, first of all, I want to say I did really enjoy the movie overall. Um, I think it's it's weird that, like, God, David Yates has been making these movies for so long now. It's like, I think it's been about a decade that he's just been making, like, Harry Potter movies. Yeah, he did, he did and, like, the last four or five Harry Potter movies, right? Four. And then he, so he did the last four Harry Potter movies, and then the first Fantastic Beasts and the second Fantastic Beasts. And he's scheduled to direct all five Fantastic Beasts if they do it. Yeah. And this one feels feels like his sloppiest like wow 
it feels like it's his his worst. Like he's I, like not even just from like the screenplay and story aside, like as far as like the filmmaking aspects of this movie goes, for some reason it seems like they've gone backwards as opposed to getting like you know more creative or like just doing cool things or learning from mistakes. It's like this one has the most mistakes of all the movies. I feel like. So that was just a strange thing, and it kind of start like from literally one of the first shots in the movie. It it's just like I don't. I mean, we can talk more about this, Brandon, but the cinematography in this movie is so freaking weird, and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't like benefit anything. It's not like <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking when they did some of the weird things they did in this movie, but um, it's a big story and it's weird it's a hard movie to to like grade because i feel like it's a it's almost like chap someone else made a good point of of the fantastic beast series is almost like it's a one book and they're giving us a chapter at a time or like three or four chapters at a time so it's kind of like this just feels like a cut out section of a larger movie so it doesn't really have a solid beginning, middle, and end. It kind of just picks up right where the other one left off, and uh, it just goes for a while and then ends again. And then presumably the next movie is going to pick up right where that left off. So it's just a weird... It's not a great structure for like a tentpole movie. It's almost like an episode of television or something. Um, so... If I'm crediting it as just this is all going to be like one big story arc across all the movies and not necessarily their own individual films that are going to meet all the other things you'd expect from most movies, then I'm able to enjoy this movie a lot more. Um, I do like where they go with a lot of the storylines. They take some creative decisions. Some A lot of things I, you know... There's uh, the first movie I feel like was extremely predictable. You could, from the get go, you kind of knew exactly where this was going, and they never really tossed any wrenches in to change that. So from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, you you're on board with everything. You know exactly what's happening the whole time, and then the movie ends. And so that's why the first movie wasn't that engaging to me. This movie at least does a lot of. There's a lot of twists, a lot of turns. Some of them don't work very well, but some of them I think work great. And uh, I don't know. Overall, it was just an exciting like like there's just a lot of information in this movie and a lot of world building and all of that I liked. And I think what they fixed in the first from the first movie was like in the first movie they kind of had the two competing angles, which was we have these fantastic beasts we have all this fun like beast taming stuff that uh new commander's doing and then we have this dark story about like abused children and like this dark lord trying to like harvest this weird energy from them and stuff and so like those did not work at all for me in the first movie those two things didn't mix at all in this movie they at least the beasts that they do use they're able to keep that tone down from it being like this wild a silly, like, fun romp of catching these monsters. 
and they still they keep it back in that realm of at least it matches the tone of the rest of the movie. So while we still have that dark dark lord stuff, this all the beasts and stuff, it's it's consistent all the way across. Is what I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. um, so much to say, I, Derek. <laughs> all right, go um, ahead. Go. For me, I so much to say. Uh, this. It sounds like you kind of like aspects of this better than the first one. I think the first one yeah. is a much stronger film all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I actually rewatched the first one right before. I think you did as well. And I enjoy the first one. I actually liked it better this time than when I saw it in theaters. And there's a lot of, you know, the characters are incredible. This second movie is so frustratingly bad. Like, I was really sad watching this. And you're totally right about David Yates. Something happens with him. Like... The CGI, I think, looks incredible still, yeah. and it has for a long time. This movie has so much, many effects in it. I think the cinematography suffers from just CGI, like, flying around without any borders or limits, like ADD-ness. The camera right. just has, like, no limits on it, and it's just, like, it It kind of does that Peter Jackson-y Lord of the Rings thing that he started developing with his, like, huge wide CGI shots, but like does it on a super ADD Harry Potter level. Um, also the editing was super frustrating. Like it was hard to tell what would be going on. And as soon as like maybe a beautiful looking image would appear, it would be gone within a blink of an eye. Cause this movie couldn't slow down for the, for the life of it. Um, okay. So some big things I hated so much was like JK Rowling's writing. I don't know if she knows how to write like a two hour film, as opposed right. to like a 900 page book as that's what she was doing by the end of her main career. Um, she cannot figure out how to edit herself in any way, shape or form. And she also has right. a problem like retconning herself from the first film. Every, all three of the major climaxes of the first film are just disregarded without a single like care at all. Whether it's where Grindelwald ends at the be- at the end of the first film, and then where he starts at the beginning of the second, and how quickly it's just like disregarded all that effort, where the relationship between Newt Scamander and his main love interest, how cute it ended at the beginning of the first, and the bullshit storyline she introduced in the second to hold them apart, um, all the way to uh, the. Uh, the uh the abused child and where you know at the end of the first film no everyone knows that like he gets totally desecrated and you see a flutter of him flying off but even so that like it's just all that effort is totally disregarded in the first like scene of the next film and like it's like the first film didn't matter at all i guess Mm -hmm. and so that would really suck and be frustrating watching the series through again in that sense um, right, and I mean, this could be so long. I don't want to bore you guys. What's that's that? A, that's a franchise. That's a franchise sin right there. Yeah. Like, uh, like you have to make your you have to make your actions and your plot points matter. Yeah. Um. And it and it just goes on from there with like, I I hate. I mean, I kind of love hate like picking a plot, large plot holes that you're leaping over. But the movie starts that from the get go. Whether it's like trying to transport um, Grindelwald from America to Europe using a like horse and carriage as opposed to like just teleporting, fucking teleport him in a fireplace (laughs) 
Like, <coughs> why would you manually carry this guy across the Atlantic fucking ocean for like 12 hours? That doesn't sound like a risk to anyone else besides using a, why don't you use a fucking port key? Like, this is the world you set up for us. Um, and like, that is just the first like three minutes of the movie. And it doesn't stop from there. It's like just stupidity with the rules within its own world that never stops throughout the whole film. Um, yeah. I could keep going, but I don't want to bore anyone. All right. It's like she's designing these set pieces just out of, I want to see this set piece and this is what's going to happen as opposed to like really hunkering down and like figuring out like, does all of this make sense? Like, is this going to, what does, like you do with any story, I'm sure she's done with every book. It's just like, how does this fit within the, the, you know, the rules that I've set up for this world and how does, right. It's like this set piece just sounds cool, so this set piece is gonna happen, right? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I didn't, I didn't, honestly, I didn't even think about that. Like, I thought that opening set piece was really fun, so I never even thought about like there are other options for transporting him. Like that just never even popped into my head. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, same because, with J.K. Rowling because I was just watching a cool set piece. I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, and sweet. Now the story begins from there, you know? Um, and I don't know. I think that's fair criticism for sure. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with like the relationship stuff. I think that all, I thought it all worked great. And then the, actually, I forgot the fourth one was, um, the, um, you know, the human, the muggle and their, their retcon of him within the first, the first moment you see his character return. They're just like, oh, I I don't want to spoil anything. Shit. Well, it's the first scene. Do you guys care about first scene spoilers? No, nah, it's all right. Okay. All right. So, you know, he, he walks in and he's like, oh, I actually remember everything because <laughs> like memory loss magic only affects bad memories, but it was all good memories to me. So, you know, I'm here and I remember all of it. <laughs> huh. That's like the first words out of his mouth. And so that, right. yeah, that's the, that's the fourth retcon. There's probably more, but... Um, well, let me, let me ask you guys, um, like, like, do you think the franchise is in trouble? Um, I mean, like, it's one of those, it's one, you know, I, I'm a franchise, like, you know, uh, hound, which like, I think a lot of America is like, I feel, I feel like a lot of people, even though this got bad reviews, like people are going to see it, you know, like Andrew was over here the other day and Carlos and Renee were planning on going to see, fantastic the new you know the new harry potter the new fantastic beast movie and he was like don't see it it's bad you know do something else with your date night and they were like well you know we're gonna see it like uh, it's the harry potter you know you gotta see it and so like i guess like my two questions are like do you think the franchise is in trouble and or like what would you guys do differently like what would she needs an editor she needs a co-writer for sure she needs to bring in that Steve Clovis or whatever who did all of the other Harry Potter movies by himself. Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> why not pay him millions, please? Yeah, because he's I didn't great. realize. And they've I didn't realize there was one guy. Too. There was wait, there was one guy who directed who wrote all the other Harry Potter movies. Yeah, he took one. Br- I think he didn't write the fourth one or something, but he wrote all the other movies. Wow! And she's yeah. supervised, so it should just flip. Like right. she should write, and then he should supervise. Right, and I think because she has ideas, down. she has great ideas everywhere, but she like, yeah, can't string them together. It's like yeah. she doesn't know structure or something. Yeah, 
yeah. two-hour structure. Yeah, it's just it's weird for me because I I think maybe that's it for me when I see all these great ideas and I like I like the direct like the grand direction that she's going in, but for sure it's a complete mess. There's a lot of problems all over the place with it, and uh, and on the directing side too. So it's just it's a weird I don't know it's a weird movie and a lot of things. I think a lot of the things you're bringing up, Brandon, like I didn't like them in the first and they didn't really work for me as well. So I think uh, a slight explanation for him in this movie is like was way more easily. It was easier for me to buy into. Mm -hmm. So I have some I have some numbers here really quick. So domestic. So it had a two hundred million dollar budget approximately. Um, it may or it uh, made domestically 126 million dollars, but it made 350 million dollars worldwide for 470 million dollars total. So it definitely more than doubled its its budget. Not to mention, it, for these movies, like as you go on, things tend to be be cheaper um, to to make a franchise like this. So, well, and I don't know how it works. I feel like. I feel like J.K. Rowling is like a solid businesswoman, and I feel like she probably, like I don't know. I th- I'm sure Warner Brothers is worried about losing money, but I don't think they can or will do anything to like slow the franchise down or stop it. I don't think they. I don't know. Like it would be surprising to me if they. Granted, they're the distributor, but it would still be surprising to me if they had the ability to just be like, okay, we're done making these movies. This movie clearly, you know, it more than doubled its budget. It's uh, and it's still making money. Um, I think the one worry that they might have is if it if the bad reviews, if this franchise starts, you know, souring people to it, um, that the future movies are going to have less of a draw and maybe the next movie they are le- a little bit less willing to spend 200 million dollars to make it because they don't know if they're going to be able to make back all that money so the next movie might be 150 million dollars or you know and then at what point is it like you can't make the movie that she wants to make uh, with the budget that they're willing to give mm-hmm. give her yeah uh, and that might you know be the that might kind of kill the franchise but i think right now you know they're they're probably looking at the numbers and starting to think about the future, but they're certainly not ready to um, to cancel it by any. You know they aren't even really thinking about canceling it at this point. They're, All right, they're still making money, but who knows? Maybe the next movie is better and it has more of a pull, and um, maybe it comes out at a better time. I don't know. This movie. I don't know if, if this movie had any real competition or anything, but well, Thanksgiving there's a lot of competition. Yeah, but, um, I don't know. So me, for, so for me, you know, I didn't really like the first one. Um, I you know I just had a bunch of issues with it. I mean, I'll probably still see this movie like when it comes out on Blu-ray, but um, I'll, I I would like to see a different director. You know, I know you guys are like, you know, big fans of David Yates and all he did for Harry Potter and stuff, but you know, he kind of he kind of joined Harry Potter um, when the films were getting darker, you know, and I think he had a real touch for creating that mood. Um, 
but the, the first Fantastic Beast, I thought in tone, like color palette was pretty like pretty dark and if not dark, like gray. And I don't know, I'd, li- I'd like to see like some fresh artistic vision come into the franchise, you know? I know I haven't seen this one, but just based on the trailer, it looked like it was kind of more of the same. And, you know. Uh, All right. Movie fr- fights. Who should direct the next Harry Potter <laughs> Fantastic Beast movie? Go. Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> Alfonso Cuaron. No. <laughs> he should come back to the franchise. He left yeah. long ago. Wait, I do want to say, actually, also for Nick. And I guess if anyone uses our reviews like as a gauge, this movie is really fucking dark. <laughs> and it even has some moments for me that were like like hard to watch on the screen, uh, especially involving little children. So um, <laughs> just a heads up going yeah, in. Yeah, what the fuck was like... with that scene? I was so <laughs> shocked. Yeah. <laughs> Why did it's... they put that in there? It's the darkest uh, thing they've ever done in the series. And they it, do it twice in this movie, oh, actually. they do it twice? Too. God, yeah. the first one is so weird. Yeah. It's... I don't... Yeah, I don't know. I think I think this is, like, the stuff that... I think this is what J.K. Rowling likes to write. Like, I think she likes the dark crime, like, mystery stuff. And I think she's really just, like, going all out, just, like, you know, just, like, throwing out everything she's been wanting to do <laughs> like i don't know it's weird it's yeah it's unusually dark and it's kind of like in my review on letterbox it said like this movie's kind of inaccessible for a lot of people i think because it is just so dark it's not harry potter like don't go in expecting any sort of relation to the franchise besides just character names and it's not there's no tone that's similar it's just it's it's in that magical world but we're dealing with something completely different and it's it's going a completely different direction. Didn't she so. write a, a legitimate um, like mystery novel too? Yeah, she had a whole like, series, I think. Yeah. I think it might have been under think, a different name. Yeah, it was it was <laughs> it was a pseudonym for her pseudonym. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, she uh, it was a, yeah, it was a dark uh, mystery murder I think it was a murder mystery novel or something they HBO did a yeah they did a, adapted uh, it series on it or something yeah okay so let talk about the movie for a while let's uh move on to the next movie so that was the fantastic piece and the crimes of Grindelwald um that's still in theaters now um so the next movie we want to talk about um is Widows so both uh, I saw Widows and Sean saw Widows. So I guess we're flip-flopping again. Uh, it's the new film by Steve McQueen, who's famous for doing uh, 12 Years a Slave and Hunger, Shame. Some pretty dark movies. But this one is uh, a little different. It's was at least marketed as more of a heist movie. A uh, brief description. Set in contemporary Chicago amid... A time of turmoil, four women with nothing in common except a debt left behind by their dead husband's criminal activities take fate into their own hands and conspire to forge a future on their own terms. So, Sean, uh, you want to take the lead on this one? Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I really like this movie. Um, it, was, it wasn't the kind of genre piece that I thought it was going to be, and I think 
maybe the trailers even uh, uh, portrayed it as. Um, but I thought the movie was extremely entertaining all the way through. Um, it it really shows like. I know this isn't something that we've ever questioned, but Steve McQueen is such a good director and all these, like there, there are so many different ideas that are being played with in this movie. It seems like on a surface level, the movie's a, a very, a fairly straightforward, um, kind of heist, um, thriller type movie. Um, but there's like, there's so many different layers and so many, um, kind of themes that are being played with like uh social class and um you know uh sexism and uh you know poverty and uh politics uh you know current politics um and corruption and you know there's so many different ideas that are that are uh being juggled throughout this movie and he does such a good job of almost not not mixing them up but i don't know yeah it, like juggling them is is such a good is a good description for it it's just like there's so many ideas and it just like they all play together so well in this movie um and it yeah i think they it it all works really well um the performances are absolutely incredible um viola davis is is stellar in this movie I would definitely expect a nomination for sure, but also a lot of a lot of kind of unknown uh, talent. Uh, some I had never heard of. Um, some of them are very new. Um, Elizabeth Debicki, 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 Michelle Rodriguez was really good. Uh, yeah, it's just there's a, there's a lot of great talent um, in this movie. Um, it looks really good too. It was, it was beautifully shot. A lot of, um, great kind of, uh, urban colors and a very urban color palette and, and kind of dark and, and gritty. And, um, yeah, there's a, a lot of really good stuff at play in this movie. Yeah, this was definitely a really, really good movie. Um, I didn't love it as much as I hoped I would. But, um, you know, Steve McQueen is like is such a great director. And what really impressed me about this movie was its attention to detail. You know, there was every scene was chock full of just uh, precision and Mm -hmm. uh, showing exactly what just exactly what he wanted you to see. And there was just a lot going on in every single scene. Um, I loved what you said about um, all the themes that are happening in this movie. There's there's that one shot where um, it's like mm-hmm. on the roof of a car, and you like drive six blocks, and you see like how much the neighborhoods change in six blocks. Which it's just it's just yeah fantastic. So like the the scene starts um, the the one of the main characters, Colin Farrell's giving kind of a speech in a very rundown uh impoverished neighborhood of chicago um and then in a single shot he gets into a car and the camera's on stays outside of the car and within like two minutes and maybe six blocks of him driving the camera just kind of stays on the hood of the car you can't see into the car but they're having a conversation in the car and then the camera just pans over and all of a sudden they're they're in a, a very rich 
you know, nice, nice houses. Um, clearly, uh, the drastic change between those two neighborhoods is is uh, pretty, um, you know, stark. Yeah, that sounds so cool. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's a it's a brilliant show. Does he do a lot of his like anti framing that he has been doing through all his indie films still? Um, yeah, I guess I didn't even think about it. I didn't notice it as much in this movie. Um, but there's definitely some very interesting stuff that he, interesting shots that he, he pulls off in this movie. So, you know, this movie, a lot of people, a lot of people have been comparing it to Heat, which I know is one of Derek's favorites. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people compare it to Heat. There's, you know, it's a lot of crime, a lot of characters, a lot of themes, a lot happening throughout the movie. Um. I I felt like because it was so detail oriented, I I wished it was longer. You know, I mean it was already like 2 hours and 15 20 minutes, so it's not exactly a short movie, but I I could have I could have had it go 3 hours. Wow. You know, um yeah, and honestly that's like my problem with it is that like it it could have been like it just could have been so much better if it had been if it had been just, allowed to have that much more of a runtime. Just the sprawling because, epic. Yeah, well, it just like it just kind of felt shortchanged a little bit, you know, like because things were so detail or because there was so much de- because there's so much detail and there's so much happening, it 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 kind of felt a little too long in some ways. Like it being two hours and fifteen minutes, almost like it 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 felt too long for a genre movie. Because it wasn't really a genre movie. I mean, it, it you know was marketed that way that it was like going to be like this heist, but the heist was only like five minutes. Like the heist was pretty quick, and they, they you know, so they they mar- it wasn't really a, the genre movie. It, it was too long for a genre movie, but it also kind of felt too short for the amount of detail and how big the story was, how big the story was going for. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely feel like they built the movie up to, to have a really interesting, complex um, climax. Uh, you know, really intense climax. But it what the the climax felt a little a little rushed. And it's like I think there is a trade off there. It's like, do you have a really big, satisfying climactic scene to the movie, or do you sacrifice some of the you know, these thematic elements or some of these character moments throughout the movie. Um, And I think they decided to go with less of the genre piece and more of a thematic exploration of, of these ideas. Um, And so I, I don't know, I've heard people say that they wished it was longer. I would have definitely been willing to sit for, for a lot, for a longer movie um, cause I was very entertained by it, but it's, it's hard to say you think that a two and a two hour and 20 minute heist movie, uh, should have been longer. Yeah. I mean, heat was uh, a good three hours, you know? Oh heat, really? Yeah. Okay. Heat, I actually heat haven't was, seen heat. That's heat was three hours long, you know? And that's wow. like, I'm sorry, but like, that's a movie people could keep comparing it to. And I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, I it wa- did not know that it wasn't heat, you know, like people say, it, you know, it wanted to be. But, you know, that's my thing is that, like, it, it strove to be, like, that sort of level, and it, it didn't get there, you know? So, so I might have a quick fun question that I want to be, like, quick shots real quick. So this this film has a lot of Oscar buzz, 
and even still with it um with it not flopping with critics everyone loved it but with it not getting as amazing buzz as it was expected to i think it'll still appear in a lot of places i'm it curious get what, a, it, box office it didn't do as well as people right. hoped i'm curious for each of you real fast which which departments does this like excel in and where could you see it popping up in uh, viola davis for viola davis for best actress for sure um cinematography mm-hmm. it's always hard to say because a lot of the you know the these categories only have five nominations so like it's always hard to say but like best picture can can, up, can have up to, yeah. up to 10 so uh, the yeah question i, I is would like, say it should be nominated for best picture because there's 10 um it's definitely of like the directing is of the caliber to be nominated for sure cinematography is of that caliber i don't know where it falls is it you know number three or five or six yeah <laughs> but yeah there's, there's but then a viola lot of, davis for is the standout in this movie for i acting. would say so for that's sure that's cool i mean she always is she always is she's like so when good. is she not the standout in whatever she's in right so um, suicide squad <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, she I think about like, like that movie. Doubt about that movie. She's the best part for sure. She had that supporting role in Fences, where she just like cried for three minutes. Was that her? Yeah, she no, won Best Actress for that. Isn't that she was, where she did in she, Doubt too, where no, she, she just cried for three minutes and then won an award? Or am I thinking of a supporting character in, in Fences? Yeah, in Fences, she was Denzel Washington's wife. So oh, she had a right. pretty big role in that movie. But you're thinking of Doubt, where she really just showed up like for one scene. But that she one scene so. was so powerful. Come on, yeah. you're dismissing it just by saying I she know, cried. Totally she was so She's good amazing. in that scene. She's amazing. No, that's I completely... I think she won... Uh, she has the record for the least screen time in a movie for winning an acting award. Wow. She's, yeah. She was actually on screen for like five and a half minutes or so. I don't know. If I'm pulling she only got nominated ass, for Doubt, it looks like. What? Oh. Doubt and The Help were I both nominations. Sworn. She won for Best Supporting Actress in Fences. Hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, so, uh, I thought she won for Doubt. But Brandy, do you have any other questions or should we move on no, to the next that's movie? It. That's it. Cool. So that was Widows and it's still in theaters now. So um, for the last movie, we're going to talk about The Ballad of Buster Scruggs which is the new Coen Brothers movie, which uh, it's a Netflix original, so it came right onto Netflix. Um, a brief plot summary. An anthology film comprised of six stories, each dealing with a different aspect of life in the Old West. Um, Brandon, you want to take the lead on this one? Yeah. Um, so I actually had a pretty special screening of this film um, at Alamo Draft House, which is an awesome bar cinema in downtown Brooklyn. Um, so the night before I got a message from a friend saying like, dude, there's, an, there's a screening of this film. The Coen brothers are going to be there doing a Q and a, like we have to go. And so the next day I showed up early, got in line and I got in the door and was front row for this. They had free popcorn. You got two free alcoholic drinks, free dinner. It was crazy. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. uh, you're in That's these giant the recliners. Oh um, gosh. granted it was on Netflix <laughs> that night too. But, um, yeah. And then after the film, the Coen brothers walked right in front of me, sat down in chair, um, and a few of the actors as well and talked through the movie for like 40 minutes. It was great. And out of all my trips to Comic-Con, I've never seen Coen brothers. I've seen a lot of my other favorite directors, but never them. So it was really special. 
Um, <clears throat> this film, I think, is, to me, mid-tier Coen Brothers. And granted, I haven't seen their other, like, in-between movies that don't get as much credit. So I'm guessing this one's probably more enjoyable than a few of the others um, that people don't put in their upper categories of their films. Um, it was to me, it was a little bit hit or miss. Um, a few of them didn't land for me. And then a few of them that did land, I wished had maybe gone a little further or just been longer or maybe an entire film in and of themselves. Cause a few of them were so good. Um, so it was kind of just like a little bit rocky for me, but overall, like it was a, it was a unique format to place this like episodic six, individual stories but in like a western context which i don't think we've ever really seen before um different aspects of the western like genre and life and um yeah i think my favorites was of course the uh i think number three the guy digging miss he kept calling it like mr sunshine what was it mr pocket mr pocket um that was tom tom waits looking digging for mr oh wow okay yeah, so Mr. Pocket was definitely, um, you know, it was just such a unique little story. Um, and then the second to the last one should have been a two and a half hour film in and of itself, directed by the Coen Brothers, because yeah, that the, that the was train. brilliant. The uh, mm. the wagon organ trail episode, um, yeah. And then I think my kind of least favorite was the first and last. It was just a little bit weaker, even though the first one had some really special moments. But yeah, overall, very enjoyable. Um, maybe maybe would be a more casual, fun watch at home. Um, but And I probably was let down being in this giant theater with the Coen brothers. That didn't really make any sense. I don't know if that made sense to you guys. I well, love seeing the like, Coen brothers. It was one like, of their best movies. Right, and like, it was made a such big deal about it going to this theater. I kind of hyped it too much for myself. So maybe that affected it a little more. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was like... You know, as with any anthology movie, you're going to have some parts that are better than others. Like, I I don't know. There's it's hard, I think, to remain consistent with anthology movies like uh, in quality. But, you know, the Coen brothers are interesting because, you know, they they have like what, like 25 movies or something. And the range of tone in those movies is so drastic. Like, you know, they did No Country for Old Ben in 2006. And that was, you know, a best picture winning, like very serious, very dark, very existential movie. And then the next year they did Burn After Reading, which is like straight up like an absurdist comedy. So like their tone ranges. But each one of these movies is like a Coen Brothers Western ranging in that tone that they have, Um, which like, I don't know, I think most of what the Coen, like the Coen Brothers are so good, like anything they do is going to be better than what most people do. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I loved the Tom Waits one. I actually liked the first one a lot, like the singing cowboy, just singing songs and killing people and stuff. Like, I thought that was like a great way to kick it off. And I maybe it was just like the CGI ending of that bit really turned me off. I couldn't get into that look of what they were going for. But yeah, it had a lot of great moments. I kind of agree with, uh, you know, kind of on both sides. I was really enjoying it. And then like when the ending to that scene, to that uh, short happened, I was just like, well, that took a weird turn. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I really like this movie too. I, 
uh, I'm doing, you know, kind of slowly moving on my uh, Westerns anthology. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed seeing <clears throat> all the different, you, you know, the, the long history of the Western genre in, condensed into a short little two hour time time frame. Um, you know, all the way from the very old, you know, 20s, 30s, uh, 30s and 40s, the um, over-the-top Western hero doesn't have a speck of dirt on him and rides around with his guitar singing songs to the, you know, very existential uh, anti-Westerns of the 70s. And it was just like, um, it was really cool to see. Um, <clears throat> and uh, honestly, I thought, I thought like even some of these short films are, you know, Academy Award quality short films. Like they could, several of them, like the, the Mr. Pocket one and the, the wagon train. Um, uh, I, I even thought the one with, uh, Liam Neeson, the, the, uh, the one with the little, the play, Gosh, whatever that was the guy so was sad. Yeah, that it was, was so like, sad. And like uh, those three short films, I thought could easily have been nominated for best short live action short film at the Academy Awards. I um, feel, I feel so weird because, and after you even listening to like the slash film review of this, like my critique of that second sh- or the third short of the of the orator or whatever the the the, the performer guy. Yeah, I don't think they took the ending far enough. Like, it was how depressing it was. I was, for some reason, like, let down at how much they didn't show. Uh, see, I actually... Maybe I'm kind I of kind psycho- of disagree. I don't know. I mean, no, I, I, uh, I think we talked a little bit about it. But for me, it was like so much of that short film, they didn't show anything. They didn't have hardly any... I don't think they had a single piece of dialogue between... Um, Liam Neeson and that be-armed and be-legged guy um, throughout the whole short. They did. It was mostly what they didn't show in that uh, in that short film that was so interesting about it. And I thought that them not showing the ending really, but still, you still knowing exactly what happened was really clever and uh, worked really well for the short film. Um, but yeah. I, I really liked it. I even liked the last one, the stagecoach one. Um, uh, I, I just thought it was really a lot of really fun, quippy, snappy dialogue uh, that you would almost expect in a Tarantino movie. But totally, yeah. People kind yeah. of forget that the Coen Brothers yeah. are often just as good at that kind of snappy dialogue as a lot of you know, like your uh, Aaron Sorkin or your Tarantinos. Um, and I just, I had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah. That last one kind of had elements of the hateful eight a little bit, like the long car, the long carriage ride in the beginning. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty good. You know, it's like, it was pretty easy to watch. Like it was kind of just like one of those nice surprises where, uh, oh, it's Friday. Hey, there's a, there's a Coen Brothers movie on Netflix now. Well, cool. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have anything else to add? Like Brandon, like what, what were the Coen Brothers like? Like, what were they talking about? Uh, the Coen brothers were way more like calm and modest. I don't know what I expected, but then I would expect a normal, like, you know, amazing filmmaker to be for two decades. 
or more, three decades. Like the the guy, every time someone asked him a question, he would kind of, you know, talk about how like how li- much less thought he put into things than you would think he did. <laughs> um, like everyone was trying to ask him all these deep questions. It's just kind of like, you know, I don't know. It just kind of came together. Like, um, you know, I didn't really try very hard to make that point, but you know, mm-hmm. that was kind of his like way of answering most questions. Um, I think it's just like he's they're they're just such geniuses and but they don't care and they don't you know they don't really notice they just do what they want to do and it just comes out the way it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how they've always been. I've, I've seen a bunch of interviews with them, and they just they don't really give you exactly what you're looking for in in those kinds of questions or in those interviews. It's like just yeah, they're very mellow and and, uh, pretty, pretty humble about their, you know, kind of what they're going for in their movies. It's like, it's like they have all the secrets inside themselves or something. Either, either they don't know anything or they just keep all of their little secrets of what they believe inside themselves. It's very easy movie to watch and it's, uh, it's on Netflix so anyone can watch it. So definitely going to watch it real soon. Pop it on. Yeah. Derek, what are you doing? Come on, man. Sorry. (laughs) Jeez. Too much God of War. It's not like you have a baby <laughs> or something. Yeah. And you can watch it like as as kind of an episodic. You can you know, each short is like twenty minutes long and watch How two long's of the them whole movie? and then pause it. And it's like two and a half, maybe two twenty. Oh, okay. So Yeah. Well cool guys. Um I think with that like we should wrap it up. Um Next month will be December, so uh, you know a lot of big movies coming out next month. And um, real quick, uh, where can we find you guys online, Brandon? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Beb B E B, and on Instagram, Brandon underscore Bowlby. Derek, uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Chicken Tech. And uh, Sean, you can find me Letterboxd on uh, as a uh, Bulbinator B U L B. Cool. So uh, same thing for me. I'm. Uh, Mothman on Letterbox. So, um, yeah, with that, so uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll s- talk to you guys next month. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.